I'm super stoked at what God's doing. Um, you know, just as Stuart was sharing and uh, things that uh, God's doing in my own life and very similar things. And, you know, our hearts really are to uh, just simply minister uh, to people, uh, to be a blessing. And, and our heart for you is that you um, that you catch that vision of just ministering uh, to people and, and letting your life be uh, a blessing to somebody else. As Paul says in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 15, for all things are for your sakes. And that verse has uh, absolutely captured uh, me over the last few months. And the fact that that all things were for their sakes, not for his sake, not for his fame, but for them to be a blessing to them. And um, that's really what ministry is all about. That's why we're here. That's why we exist as a church, is to minister to people, to minister to you guys, to be a blessing to you guys. And, you know, oftentimes uh, that doesn't take place. Um, you know, it, it's not true uh, ministry that's happening. And so my heart is that that is what is happening in, in your lives and, and that you guys respond to that and, and that you don't just say, yeah, you know, I want to come and be ministered to, but you say, man... I've been ministered to. I've been blessed. And now I want to minister. Now I want to be a blessing. And, and that's, that's my heart for you guys. That's my heart for this church. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 11 through 15 this morning. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians as a defense of his ministry to address the character assassinations that had been leveled against him to sort of set the record straight on really why he did what he did and what he was all about. And 2 Corinthians really is a textbook on ministry. It would be an awesome book to use as a preparation for guys, for gals, for all of us who have a heart to minister. But certainly uh, for those of us that want our lives to be used by the Lord. This is our textbook. This is where we should be getting our principles of ministry, if you will. And here in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us five motivations for ministry. Five things that really fired him up. Five things that, that lit a fire under him and, and that caused him to, to go and serve Jesus with all of his heart. And uh, we looked at a few of these last week, but I just want to quickly go back over them. In verses 1 through 8, Paul gives us the first motivation for ministry, and that was that he had an eternal perspective. The fact that he knew this life was so short, that caused him to want to use every moment he had to serve Jesus. So an eternal perspective was the first motivation. The second motivation that we see is the goal of pleasing God. In verse 9, Paul says that he made it his aim to be well-pleasing to him. And we talked about that last week. The goal of pleasing God, that our lives ought to be focused on pleasing Jesus. That ought to be our aim. That ought to be our goal. And then the third thing we saw last week, third motivation there in verse 10 is the judgment seat of Christ. And that is, is that we are all going to stand before the Lord as believers and give an account for what we did with our life, what we did with the gifts that we were given. Did we bury them in the sand? Did we just say, hey, you know, 
I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to live for myself. Or did we use those things that we were given to be a blessing to other people? We're going to give an account for that. And we don't often think about that. We don't often think about what am I going to say about how I used what God gave me. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Well, this morning we're going to look at a couple more of them. In verse 11, the terror of the Lord. That's the fourth motivation that we see in this text. The terror of the Lord. The the fear of the Lord. Verse 11. And then in verses 14 and 15, the fifth motivation, the love of Christ. And so really this morning, I want to look at these last two motivations, the terror of the Lord and the love of Christ. And in between these two points, Paul deals with some accusations about his ministry. And so three things this morning in our text, we're going to see what motivated Paul to begin his ministry. That is the terror of the Lord. Verse 11. Then we're going to see Paul deal with some accusations that had sort of been leveled against him about his ministry. And then we're going to see what motivated Paul to continue in ministry, and that is the love of Christ. So let's, uh, let's look at verse 11. What motivated Paul to begin his ministry? Read with me. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So the first thing that Paul tells us is really what launched him forward in ministry. What motivated him to begin ministry? And he says it was the terror of the Lord. And I think this terror of the Lord has a twofold application. It should motivate us in two ways, really. First, I think it's it's speaking of ourselves. That we recognize, based on the context of the judgment seat of Christ that we recognize that we are going to give an account for our lives as believers. That there is a judgment for how we use what we were given. And that terror, that fear, that motivation should drive us to serve Christ. That we should say, man, if I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account of how I use the things that God gave me, If I'm going to stand before the Lord and have to, you know, share how I use the gifts that God gave me. If I'm going to stand before the Lord and have all of my life be judged by fire, the Bible says. And those things that are wood, hay and stubble are going to be burned up. And those things that are of gold and silver and precious stones will remain. We're going to be tested. Our life's work will be tested by fire. And I don't want to stand before the Lord and have my entire life go up in flames because of false motivation, because I got my rewards on earth, because I was seeking the praise of men, because I was doing it to be famous, to get a pat on the back, because I was doing it for money. I I don't want those to be my motivation. I I, I want to have pure motives. And I want to stand before the Lord. And when my works are tested by fire, that they remain. And so that, you guys, is the first, I, I think, application of the terror of the Lord contextually. That 
drove Paul into ministry is he realized that he would give an account of his life. He thought, man, I, I need to get busy. I, I need to be serving the Lord. I, I can't be sitting around serving myself. But I think another application of this terror of the Lord is the judgment of sinners. In other words, the terror of the Lord should create within us a desire to reach people with the gospel. It should create within us a heart for unbelievers. Because yes, as believers, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to give an account for our lives. But as unbelievers, those that have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they will stand before what's called the great white throne of judgment. And they will have to answer for why they rejected Jesus' offer, Jesus' gift of salvation. And they will answer for their sins. And people say, well, I think my good works will outweigh my bad works. I think God will recognize that I'm a good person and that I really, you know, was a nice guy and I helped old people across the street. And, you know, I think one time I, I gave to save the whales or something, you know, and I never murdered anybody and I, I was, you know, I never molested any kids. So, you know, I'm a pretty good person. That's sort of the, the idea, the mindset of people. And you guys... That mindset will not stand at the judgment of God, at the great white throne of judgment. Because we're not going to be, they're not going to be judged based on and compared to somebody else. See, if that were the case, then yeah, there, there would be some that are good and some that are bad. But we're going to be judged compared to perfection. So, even if you've sinned one time, you're not perfect. And so that eliminates you from heaven, trying to get there on your own. And that's why Jesus came and He died in our place and He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But those that have rejected Jesus, and I hope and I pray that, that that's none of you, but if it is you, if you know in your heart this morning that you've rejected Jesus then you will stand before God to give an account for why you rejected Jesus. And then you will face the penalty for your sins. And Paul says, that notion, that understanding, that truth created such a fire in my heart, created such a desire for me to see people come to Christ. That's what would cause Paul to get on ships and travel across the known world at that time and go and be beaten and be mocked. That's what would cause Paul to be stoned and then get right back up and, and continue to preach the Gospel. That's what motivated him. It was the fact that he was going to give an account for his own life. And it was also the fact that he knew that sinners were going to hell. And you know, we as believers say that we believe that. But I don't know if we truly do. Because if we truly did, 
I think it would change the way that we interact with people in our families that don't know the Lord. I think it would change the way that we interact with people at work. Because Paul understood this truth and it captivated his heart. It grabbed a hold of him and caused him to give his life for the sake of others. The terror of the Lord. In the modern day church, we don't talk about the terror of the Lord very often. We don't talk about the fear of the Lord. In fact, oftentimes when we do talk about the fear of the Lord, we explain it away. Well, you know, in the Bible, the fear of the Lord really means a respect. It's kind of like, you know, respecting your teacher at school. No, it doesn't. The fear of the Lord means the fear of God. You can look up that word fear in the Bible and it means fear. It doesn't mean like a casual little respect, you know, like you have for a teacher or for your mom or dad. It means to fear God because He's holy, because He's set apart. But God is also loving. And so there's this balance that we have with the Lord. And as believers, the fear of God, the terror of God, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. So we don't face that. But there are multitudes of people in our community that are facing the terror of the Lord, that are facing the wrath of God. And it ought to frighten us for them. It ought to motivate us to minister to them, to share with them. Paul says that the terror of the Lord, knowing the terror of the Lord, caused him to desire to persuade men, he says. We persuade men. The word persuade, it means to move with kind words. To move with kind words. To motivate. To, to cause people to come to Christ. To move them from where they are to where they need to be. How? By yelling and screaming. By picketing on the side of the road that God hates homosexuals. And, you know, oh no, the Democrats are in charge now. We're all going to hell. I mean, is that really what we ought to be doing? No. The Bible says that we persuade with kind words. Not condemnation, but kindness. In fact... Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The kindness, you guys. And so, as we're now motivated, as we say, man, the terror of the Lord, the judgment of God, I need to share with people. We share with kindness, with love, with grace. And then we move men toward God. We take our cues from Jesus. Jesus was so compassionate, was so loving, was, was so gentle with people that had an open heart toward Him. It was only the religious leaders, it was only the people that thought they had it all together that Jesus actually ever condemned or ever had a harsh word for. But sinners, like the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? And she said, they're gone. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's how Jesus handled sinners. Kindness, love, compassion, grace, mercy. That moves people. That touches their heart. 
Guys, we don't need to pick it. We don't need to yell. We don't need to scream. God's not mad. I was watching somebody the other night. My brother-in-law put on this video. And this is a pretty you know, prominent Bible teacher. He's really catching a lot of momentum. And, and he said, what do you think? And I said, you know what? I've got to be really honest with you. He seems like he's mad. Why is he mad? And who's he mad at? I'm not mad. God's not mad. Why is he mad? And, and, you know, we kind of come across sometimes like God's mad at us. I don't think God's mad. We, we don't have to come across like, you know, we're angry. Kindness, love. That's what draws people to Christ. And that motivated Paul to launch forward in ministry. The terror of the Lord. It's interesting. Well, let's look at how how Paul dealt with some accusations about his ministry. Verses 12 and 13. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of a sound mind, it is for you. And so Paul deals with some accusations about his ministry, I want you guys to notice three things here. First of all, Paul didn't commend himself. You remember back in previous studies that we talked about how that in that day and age, in that society, when you traveled, when you went to places, you would bring letters of recommendation. You know, because they didn't have the Holiday Inn, they didn't have the Best Western. And so when you went to places... To travel, maybe on business or in Paul's case, on mission work, you didn't stay in a hotel. You would stay with people. So, you know, it's like the Smith family is going to bring you into their home, but they kind of want to know a little bit about you before they do that. And so you would bring letters of recommendation that would say, yeah, you know, Paul's a great guy. He loves the Lord and this and that. And okay, great. Well, Paul didn't bring those. And we talked about that, how that Paul was not interested in being commended by men. He, his commendation came from Christ. And so these teachers, these leaders in the church of Corinth that had come in after Paul planted this church, they said, look, Paul didn't even have letters of recommendation. Who is this guy anyway? He didn't have any letters to say who he was, to say what he was about. And Paul would say, look, my life spoke for itself. And the fruit of my ministry spoke for who I am. We talked about that at great length in previous studies. And Paul is sort of referring to that again here. He's saying, we do not commend ourselves again to you. And that's the first thing I want you to notice is that Paul didn't commend himself. Paul didn't recommend himself. Paul didn't bring praise to himself. Paul didn't say how great he was. He wasn't interested in doing that. And I think we have to be very careful, like Proverbs says, that we let another man praise us, not our own lips. Because there's nothing more of an affront to the kingdom of God and to His work than pride. God hates pride. The Bible tells us that. And so, 
Don't allow yourself to to boast, to brag, to commend yourself, to pat yourself on the back. Don't think of yourself more highly than you want to think, the Bible says. We, we really need to have Christ's estimation of us. And that is that in and of ourselves, in and of our flesh, we have nothing to offer. The Bible says we're, we're spiritually bankrupt. But with Christ, we can do all things. With Christ, we can be accepted by God. With Christ, we can be used by God. And so we have Christ's estimation of ourselves. We see ourselves through Him. Like Paul says, I make my boast in Christ. Not in myself. Not in my own abilities. We've got to be careful of that. We've got to be careful of bragging about ourselves and boasting about ourselves. Paul says, I don't do that. I don't commend myself. But give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, he said. So if you want to look at the fruit of my ministry and you want to recommend me, then great. That you may have an answer for those whose boast in appearance and not in heart. For those whose boast is in appearance and not in heart. Paul didn't want to be judged by his outward appearance. He wanted to be judged by his heart. And that's why he didn't commend himself. That's why he didn't boast about himself. Because what men want to see and what men boast about is the outward. And what God sees and what God is actually looking for and what God thinks is incredible and is amazing is your heart. But that's not how we look at things. That's not how we judge things. We judge by the outward appearance. We judge the success of a church by how big the building is or how many people go there. We judge the success of a ministry by how many people get saved or how many people were baptized. And it's, it's numbers. And Paul says, I, I, I don't want to be judged by the outward appearance. I don't want to be judged by how I look, by how I appear to you. We judge people by how they dress, by how much money they have. But the Lord doesn't. The Lord looks at our heart. And that's what He's concerned with, is your heart. We've been talking a lot about our heart. Where is our heart? Where are our passions? What moves us? What drives us? What gets us out of bed in the morning? That's what we're judged for, you guys, is our heart. If you're a responsible person and, and you're a successful person and you're a person that has your act together, but your motivation is to make a lot of money, that doesn't impress God. And we might look at a person that's homeless on the street and say, man, they're a loser. They don't have a job. They don't have any money. They don't have a life. And we look at ourselves and we think we've got it all together. And yet God isn't real impressed with us either. I'm not saying God's impressed with lazy people who don't have any responsibility. But what I'm saying is that God is not impressed with people who are motivated by the things of this world. See, we are impressed by that. 
We're impressed by Bill Gates. We're impressed by the Rockefellers. We're, we're impressed with Starbucks and Google and Costco. And we're impressed with those things. Those companies impress us. We think, wow, I wish I had bought some stock in Google. You know, I wish when that little search engine started, I had thought about that. But God's not impressed with those things. What God's impressed with is our heart. And that's what we'll be judged for and by. Where's your heart at? What moves you? What motivates you? What's your passion? Well, the third thing that Paul addresses here about these accusations in his ministry is in verse 13. He says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of a sound mind, it is for you. In other words, these people that had come into the church of Corinth and were now ridiculing Paul and were coming against Paul, one of the things that they were accusing him of was being crazy. They're like, come on, that Paul guy's nuts. You don't want to listen to that guy. He's a Looney Tunes. And Paul didn't defend himself by saying, hey, we aren't crazy. That's not fair. You know, you can call me anything, but don't call me crazy, you know. Paul says, I don't really care whether you think I'm nuts, whether you think I'm crazy, whether you think I'm out of my mind. It really doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to try to defend that. In fact, I probably am crazy. I'm crazy for Jesus, is Paul's point here. Whether I'm beside myself, which that just means that you're out of your mind, that phrase, beside yourself. Whether you think that we are beside ourselves, well, then it's for God. Or if you think we're of a sound mind, then it's for you. In other words, I don't really care what you think. I don't care if you think I'm nuts. I don't care if you think that I'm the most brilliant guy in the world. It doesn't matter to me. Paul says, I am crazy. Crazy for Jesus. And you guys, if you step out to serve the Lord, if that phrase, for all things or for your sakes, captures you the way it's captured me, if your life is to be a blessing to other people. If your life is dedicated to serving God, then people will look at you and they will think you're crazy. You mean you work 40, 50 hours a week and then you dedicate half of your Sunday to go to church? You don't even get to watch the games live? You're crazy. And then on top of that, you give a portion of your income to that place. And you'll even give to missions and and to poor people and to needy people in the community. You'll give your time to go rake leaves for somebody that you don't even know. You're nuts. You're crazy. You're going to go on a mission trip with the only vacation time you have for the whole year. You're going to go and help some people in Mexico and you're even going to pay your own way and use your own resources? That's crazy. It's nuts. 
It goes against man's wisdom, you guys. It doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense to you. If Jesus Christ has captured your heart, it makes sense to you. There's nothing that makes any more sense. To live selfishly, to live for yourself, to live for worldly gain, that's crazy to you. You look at that and you think, that's nuts. That's crazy. I don't want to live like that anymore. Because, man, if you could only understand the joy, the fulfillment, the pleasure, the satisfaction that I get from serving somebody else, if you only understood that, then you would want to do this. But you don't understand it because your mind is worldly. And you guys, some of us here are saved. We know Jesus, but our minds are carnal. Our minds are worldly. Our minds are focused on the things of this earth. And we're consumed with serving ourselves. And we even look at people in the church who do those things. All the things I just listed. And we think, I think they're crazy. They're, they're a little too dedicated. They're a little too fanatical. I mean, we don't have to go overboard or anything. I mean, I, you know, I'll go to church, but, you know, I'm in a big hurry to get out of here. Or I'm not going to give my money, or there's no way I'm going to serve, or there's no way I'm going to go on a mission trip. And you guys, if that's your heart, then you need to repent. You need to say, Jesus, capture me. Take me out of this selfishness that I'm living in. That's what Paul is communicating here to us. He says, yeah, I am crazy. But it's because of what Jesus did. And He captured my heart. And there's no way I'm turning back. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what motivated Paul to continue in ministry. We've seen what sort of launched him into ministry, what, what got him going in ministry. We've seen him handle some accusations in ministry. Let's talk a little bit about what motivated Paul to continue in ministry. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. Probably some of the greatest verses in the New Testament. The love of Christ compels us, he says. What was Paul's reason for continuing in ministry? I mean, that's a great question. Paul, why would you continue? I mean, if, we, if you went down to Mexico... And you were serving the people down there, and all of a sudden they just started throwing rocks at you. Probably be like, you know, let's go somewhere where the people actually want to listen, where they actually want to hear it. But Paul didn't have that kind of mindset. Paul had such a passion to minister to people. Picture yourself next Saturday out there raking leaves, and here comes an old guy out of the house, he just starts throwing stuff at you, or he just starts shooting his gun. You know, old 30-30 lever action, you know, from the hip. You know, 
And then you dodge a couple bullets, wait till he's out of ammunition, then you keep raking leaves, you know. That was Paul. Why? Why would you do that, Paul? Why would you continue in the midst of all these difficulties? I mean, Paul said that he was whipped, that he was scourged three times. I'm sure all of us have seen the passion of the Christ. We saw the scene where Jesus was scourged, where he was whipped. Paul says that he went through that, and we don't know to what degree, but the scourging was that process. And Paul says he experienced that three times. He says he was shipwrecked. He says he went hungry for days at a time. He was persecuted. He was abandoned by his family. He was imprisoned. Why would you continue, Paul? I think I would have found a new vocation. I think I would have said, you know, maybe God's not calling me to this. It seems so difficult and so hard and nobody wants to listen. Why would Paul continue to give his life for the sake of others? Why should you? Why should I give my life for the sake of others? Why shouldn't we just live in our own little selfish self-consumed world of going to work, making money, and then doing whatever we want to do. Why, why shouldn't we live like that? Well, because the love of Christ compels us. The word compels here, it's a very interesting word. It means to push forward as in motivation as in the motivation to continue in ministry, but it also means to hold together. The love of Christ pushed Paul forward, certainly. I think a great example of that, I mentioned it briefly, is in Acts chapter 14 where Paul is stoned in Lystra. He's stoned and it says they left him for dead. Left him for dead. They assumed he was dead. You guys, when we talk about stoning in the Bible, we don't want to think about like little rocks. We want to think about boulders. That's what were thrown at people when they were stoned. Just imagine being stoned with, you know, softball-sized rocks heaved at you. Paul was left for dead. Then some of his friends, some of his ministry partners came out and Paul was either resurrected or, you know, resuscitated. One of the two. We don't really know. But I think at that point, I would have said, I need some R&R. You know, you guys go on ahead without me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head back to Jerusalem for a while. Just, you know heal up a little bit. Not Paul. At that point, Paul got up and he went to Derby and began to minister to people. What pushed him forward? What would cause a man to do that? Paul says it was the love of Christ. The love of Christ compelled him. The love of Christ had captured his heart. Because I wonder if the love of Christ has captured our heart. If the love of Christ is compelling us. Well, another 
application of this is that the love of Christ not only pushed him forward, it not only motivated him, but it also held him together. That's the second application of that word. The love of Christ held Paul together. In fact, while Paul was in Corinth, he began to become extremely afraid of the opposition that was coming against him. I mean, even Paul, with all that he experienced, with all that he had gone through, with all the trials, even Paul at times became afraid. And it says in Acts chapter 18 that Paul was simply afraid and he was ready to quit there in Corinth because of the opposition. And and the Lord came to him in the night and the Lord spoke to him and said, Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And then Paul continued there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. What held Paul together when most of us would have ran? What held Paul together when most of us would have fallen apart? was the love of Christ. It was God's still small voice in His heart. It was the love of Christ that had captured Him. Because I want you to notice something that Paul's motivation to continue in ministry is not money. I mean, that would make sense. If there was like a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow somewhere, then, yeah, you know, I could see that. Paul's motivation to continue in ministry was not worldly success. It was not fame. Paul would end up dying in a Roman jail cell saying at the end of his life that almost all of his friends had abandoned him. Most of us wouldn't define success that way. Paul wasn't looking for success. Paul wasn't looking for worldly gain. Those were not the things that motivated him. Those were not the things that would get him on another ship and another boat and cause him to travel to another city. What are we motivated by? What compels us? For many of us, it's the love of money, not the love of Christ. It's the love of money that gets us out of bed in the morning. You guys, we all need money. We all need to make a living. We all need an income. But if that is our motivation to propel us forward, to continue on, if that's what we're all about, is the next promotion, the next raise, success in the world's eyes, You guys, it is empty. It is fleeting. And it will all burn up at the judgment seat of Christ. It will all burn up. How many ministries today are more about the love of money than they are the love of Christ? And I I don't doubt for a second that that they're saved and they love the Lord, but when they stand before the Lord and they give an account for their ministry, it's going to be up in smoke. It's gone. And I think a lot of our lives are more about the love of money than they are the love of Christ. A lot of what 
compels us, a lot of what has captured us, a lot of what motivates us to do things is money and worldly success and worldly gain. If you think about it in terms of what you make time to do. We make time to do those things that are important to us. And we make time for work because that's how we make a living. That's how we make money. And some people make time to even work overtime so that they can make more money. And some people make time to work all the time because they want to make even more money. And some people spend a lot of time seeking out worldly success. That's their goal in life. And it can be across the board, you guys. It can be money. It can be hunting. It can be, you know, stuff that ladies like to do. Shopping. I don't know. You know, whatever that is that is compelling you. We, I said last week, you know, I don't really think that, you know, a trophy room is, is going to impress God at the judgment seat. I don't think that's something God's going to be really impressed with. Nor do I think that our bank accounts will impress God. What's compelling you? What's driving you forward in this life? There's a lot of options out there. A lot of goals that we have in this life. But you guys, my hope for myself, because I want this to be true of me even more than I want it to be true of you. Because I have to give an answer for me, first and foremost. And I want this to be true of my life. I want this to be my heart. I certainly don't want to just say this and not live it. So that's first of all. But secondly, my heart for you is that you are motivated by the love of Christ. That it has so captured your heart that you want to serve Him. That you want to give. That you want to go on mission trips. That you want to go and rake leaves. That you want to serve people. That you're not here just to notch another Sunday attendance in your belt. That you don't want to just come and sing a few songs and hear another Bible study and go home. But you want to be captured by the love of Christ and you want it to consume your life. It's pretty intense. It doesn't appeal to the masses. These these concepts. But it's the Word of God. It's the heart of God what he wants look what Paul says he says the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all that is Jesus he died for all of us he died in our place one man for the sins of the world if one died for all then all died in other words Jesus died in your place but now he asks you to take up the same cross and to die to yourself Have we done that? Time and again, Jesus said, do you want to follow me? Take up your cross and let's go. What does that mean? A little cross around my neck or T-shirt 
It says, I love Jesus with a cross on it. No, those can be cool. It's not a bad thing. But what that means is death to self. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul said. I've been crucified with Christ. My life is not my own. That's what it means to take up the cross. If one died for all, then all died. You see, they go hand in hand. And that's why if you know Jesus today and you believe that He died for you and you believe that one died for all and you're a part of that all, you want Jesus' forgiveness, but you are living selfishly, that's why your life's so miserable. That's why you're unfulfilled. That's why you're unsatisfied. Because there is a confliction in your heart. You see... You believe that one died for all, but you haven't accepted this second phrase, then all died. And they go together. You see, if one died for all, then all died. If you believe Jesus died on the cross for you and you want to follow him, but you're following him without the cross. Then you feel kind of naked. Have you ever been somewhere where everybody was dressed a certain way except you? You know, or like maybe if you were a kid and you played, you know, basketball and every all the kids on the team had the, you know, really cool Nike shoes that the coach told everybody to buy, but your family couldn't afford them. And so you had kind of the off brand and everybody had the same shoes, but you, you kind of felt weird. It kind of feels funny. You kind of feel out of place. Well, it's the same way when we show up. As Christians, as believers, without the cross, without crucifying ourselves, we're out of place. We don't fit in. There's a confliction that's going on in our heart. Because we want the cross for us, we want to be forgiven, but we haven't taken up the cross and given our life for the sake of others. Paul says, and he died for all. Listen, verse 15. He died for all that those who live, that's us. He died for all that we might live, that we might have life. Jesus said that you might have life and more abundant life, in fact. He wants to give you eternal life. That is salvation. But he wants to give you abundant life today. An abundant life, you guys. It comes out of serving other people, being a blessing to other people. He said, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves. Wow. That's huge. Should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Who are we living for? Are we living for ourselves? Are we living... For our promotion? For our gain? Or are we living for Him? Because of what He did. See, the love of Christ, you guys, it compels us. When you recognize what Jesus did for you, you don't want to live selfishly anymore. You don't want to live for yourself. You want to live for others. You want to live for Christ. That's the heart of what Paul is saying here. He died for you so that you would no longer live 
for yourself. I'm going to ask the worship team to to come back up. And and maybe you need to, to get some things right in your own heart. Maybe we've been living for ourselves. Maybe we've been living for selfish gain. Maybe our motivation has been the things of this world. Maybe we don't have a heart for people. Maybe we have no heart to share the gospel. As we talked about, the terror of the Lord motivated Paul to share the gospel with people. Maybe you need that heart. You guys, I pray that none of us leave here having not been challenged by the Lord. Because these are truths, you guys, that I know I'm not living up to. And if you sense in your own heart that you're not living up to these things, then I would ask that you just get that right with the Lord. That you honestly say to God today, God, I want to live for the sake of others. God, I don't want to live for myself any longer. I want to live for you. To please you. So let's stand and and just uh, allow God to search your heart and to minister to you this morning.